can be seated. I suppose seated on your couch or wherever you might find yourself this morning, on your bench, on the tube behind your boat. I don't know where you are, but I hope that you are uh, with us in worship and uh, thankful that we can, as Kyle said, um, gather together and um, be together in spirit. So we are continuing our study in the book of Amos. And um, as you have perhaps picked up on, and we alluded to it in the first week as we began this uh, teaching series through the book of Amos and hearing from this prophet of old and a prophet that many of us um, in some senses were probably was unknown to us um, prior to this study. Um, This is a challenging book. It's a rather dark book, a message of judgment from God, judgment against sin and uh, judgment against God's own people primarily. And so, so often when we think of God's judgment and we think of um, just the way that God is moving, I think we can be tempted to believe and look outward and we see those people who are not walking with Christ and those who are the non-Christians in our world today and we look at them scornfully and we think, yes, God will one day judge them. But this book is a warning to us, a warning to God's people that the sin that exists within his house Um, He looks upon perhaps even more greatly because of who we are called to be. And so we see Amos speaking to Israel, God's people of the Old Testament, and he is giving uh, and delivering a harsh word, a strong word of judgment against the sins of those people. And so in chapter 3, as we turn to chapter 3, the first chapter, just a very brief recap, is a sort of an encapsulation of Amos um, declaring judgment, God's judgment against all of the nations. And he closes chapter 1 and moving into chapter 2, begins to levy God's judgment or speak about God's judgment against Judah and Israel, the two kingdoms of God, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And he is giving sort of a, an overview, and in almost in a sense, it's like Amos is saying, I'm here, you need to wake up, you need to listen to what I have to say. And as we get into chapter 3, and then 4, and 5, and following, Amos is getting more specific as he deals with the sins of Israel, the sins of God's people. And so before he gets there, he has to give a little bit of a word of explanation as to why he is even there. So Amos chapter 3, God is reminding his hearers that would be listening to Amos' voice that they're not just hearing from a man, but hearing from God himself. And he says to them, don't think that you're hearing just from me. And he also says, don't harden your hearts to what is being said, because this isn't just me, Amos, the shepherd that you don't know, the unknown uh, uh, minor prophet, but no, these are words from God. And it is God's graciousness, as we have said many times before, that he rebukes his children and calls us out of our sin. Because if it was not for that graciousness, if God did not call out the sin and lead us away from that, we would remain, his people would remain in their sin. And if they remain in their sin, they would remain in judgment forever. But in his mercy, he calls us out of sin and he, um, he, he, he judges those sins and rebukes sinfulness and says, come and follow me. So over the next three chapters, as we begin chapter three and then we follow ahead in four and five, Amos is delivering, in a sense, three messages to Israel. And this first message out of chapter three is that message of a bit of explanation, explaining to them why is God judging them? As one commentator put it, Amos is sharing these divine callings that announce Israel's judgment 
is certain and that it will surely happen. And as we began this series, we said that so often as we look around our world, we wonder, is God even aware of what's going on? Does he see all of the sinfulness, all of the brokenness? And again, so often we look outwardly and he says, yes, I see all of that out there. I also see it within the family of God, within my people, and I will judge it. I will deal with sin. And so Amos here in chapter 3 is, is, is explaining or announcing that it is a certain thing. So God declares through Amos to Israel these callings. And the first calling that Amos explains in chapter 3 is that God called Israel and set them apart. Notice what he says in verse 1. Here, this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities." And so he says to Israel that I called you, I set you apart, that you are my people. O people of Israel, the whole family. And God declares or describes his people as a family. And when he speaks about the whole family, because he is from Judah speaking to Israel, he is encapsulating all of the people of God between the two kingdoms. And he says to them, I brought you out of Egypt. I delivered you from slavery, from the burden that you had, the yoke you once carried. God chose, he says, I chose you out of all the families of the earth. I set you apart and you have forgotten me and you have forgotten my graciousness to you to do that. Deuteronomy 7 describes the people of Israel describes God's people. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people of the, the than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God describes here his love for his people and that he had called them and he had done what he had promised that he would do. And he did what only he could have done. There was no other person. There's, there's no one but God who could have delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And so he calls them and he blesses them. And those who are called and those who are blessed, as we described last week, those who have been entrusted with much, much is expected. Obedience is a requirement to those who have been called and blessed. We are responsible to be obedient to God. Yesterday, we celebrated our Independence Day as a nation. We celebrated our freedom from tyranny and from the burdens of, of all that the British people oppressed on our early nation. And how much more, even as we celebrate as Americans, as Christians, brothers and sisters, how much more do we know freedom, freedom from slavery, from sin? We have been set free from the tyranny, from all that comes against us. That is why, by the way, that so many nations in this world do not allow Christians to come in to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ because there is a freedom that comes with, with Christ, a freedom that comes with understanding that you're no longer burdened and enslaved to sinfulness that, that sort of weaves its way into the way you view the world and the way you view life. And so they know 
If we allow the kingdom of God to come to this place, that kingdom will overthrow and uh, will, will, will supersede this earthly kingdom. And so even as we celebrate our nation and the birth of our nation and our independence and all of those things, we should, even greater, we should celebrate the fact that we have been set free from sin. We have been redeemed. And ultimately that we're responsible to be obedient as a result of that. So God spoke of this judgment against the other nations in chapter one and now here he gets to his own people more explicitly and he says that I will judge your sins. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So God begins speaking through Amos, describing why Israel is receiving this unique, in a sense, this specific judgment. So in verses three and following, the people who are listening to Amos might have said, well, why would we listen to you? And so Amos, in a sense, defends his calling as the prophet. Remember, Amos is not a professional prophet. He isn't someone that that's his whole life. He's a shepherd or a farmer and uh, working in agriculture. And God called him out of that field to go in and deliver this message to his people. And so Amos is sharing his, in a sense, his justification for the message that he would deliver in verses 3 through 8. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Verse seven, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? So Amos, as he's being questioned, or it's possible that his listeners were wondering why he would be the one that would come to deliver this message, he is telling them that he's only here, the only reason that he, he left Tekoa, came up from Judah into Israel, did all the things that he's doing, is not because he just felt like he could do that. No, it's because God had called him to do that. Only God could do that. Only God in the same way. Only God could deliver his people from Egypt. Only God through this, uh, uh, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ could redeem people from sin. Only God could have called Amos to leave what he was doing before and send him to Israel to declare these truths. And he's using these poetic words, this language. Again, sometimes when we read the Old Testament and especially prophecy, we get a little bit distracted and we're wondering, okay, that sounds like a lot of rhetorical questions. What could they mean? <laughs> What's the purpose? Well, Amos is getting to the point that there's this natural cause and effect. These are, these are questions that he's rhetorical questions, again, that he's asking that describe this cause and effect. This ridicule of, of Amos saying, I don't know why you're here. Who would you be to come and tell us? Amos is replying to, and he's saying, if two people are gonna walk together, Guess what? They're going to meet first. So if I'm here to do what I have done and what I've been called to do, it's because I met with God and he told me to come and deliver this message. If the lion roars in the forest, he does that because there's prey. If a trap springs from the ground, it means that a bird has been caught. And if people in a city are terrified, it's because the trumpet is blown to warn them of pending, impending danger. These are obvious facts that the people would have understood from regular life, and they would have acknowledged. And he's saying, if I'm preaching God's word, that meant God called me, and so you better pay attention. You better listen up. 
And by the way, as he does so perfectly, Amos weaves God's uh, calling and God's word to the people to into the way that he asked the questions. Amos was the one who was walking with God, and so he knew the message. Amos was announcing the roar of the lion because its prey had been caught. Amos was telling them that they had been caught in their sin. Amos was telling them that they were in grave danger. He was blowing the trumpet, announcing that there were causes, sinfulness, that was going to lead to an effect, judgment. Amos had heard God's word of judgment, and so he was compelled to speak as he, as he says, The lion had roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So often when we hear from God, we are tempted to question and doubt. Even now as I speak and we begin to consider as a faith family, as a church, we look internally, individually, and we think, okay, there are sinfulness things in my own heart. The enemy is going to come along and say, who said that? Just as he did in the garden, he said, did God really say? And so we begin to kind of justify things in our minds and begin to ask the question, did God really say that sin? Is that really a word from God? And so we need to recognize that yes, there is a cause for God's word coming to us and coming sometimes against us. And that cause is our own sinfulness. And we need to be attentive to that. And we need to be thankful that he says that. Again, parents, so often we use the illustration of parenting and children. And kids, you know this, that sometimes your parents come and they speak to you and they tell you of a sin. They tell you of a problem in your life. And you're thinking, man, why you you sweating me, man? I don't know why you're doing this to me. Well, let me tell you, we're sweating you because there's a problem. And there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. And in the same way... Uh, Parents, we know that that is true, that if we're coming and we're speaking to our children, we're doing that out of gracious love because we see something in their life that could ultimately cause them harm. We see something, some impending danger ahead of them. We see the direction that they are heading and we're saying, don't do that. Even if it's just small and we are telling them, don't stick your finger in that little socket. Don't touch that hot plate any longer. Or as they get older, those things multiply and ultimately the consequences multiply. Yes, do not... Take your eye off the road. Keep your focus. Keep that phone in that dashboard. Do not pick it up. All of these things we do because we love. They're gracious warnings in the same way God graciously is coming against his people and saying there is sin in your life. It will be dealt with. And so for us, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be like the people that might have first heard Amos and say, I don't think I really want to hear about that. I don't want to know about that sin. I don't want to be confronted with that reality because I'm comfortable where I'm at. Well, Israel was quite comfortable, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, just to the way that Amos, the language that he uses. And God calls them out of that comfortable place so that they might be renewed, restored, and ultimately so God would be glorified through their lives. So God calls He describes his calling on Israel. He describes his calling of Amos to this ministry of prophecy. And then God calls witnesses. You might be wondering, why is God calling witnesses? What does this all mean? As we pick up in verse 9, Amos says, Proclaim to the strongholds of Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. You know, it's a very sad day 
when the watching world sees God's people, either here in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, or sees Christians trapped in their sin. How heartbroken I am when I read and learn of pastors who have fallen into sin. And the watching world looks upon and says, see, I told you so. They're no different than us. They're no better. And they justify their sinfulness through looking upon the sins of the people who are called by God's name. They say, I told you so. And it brings shame upon them, of course, but more than that, it brings shame upon the name of God. And here, Amos highlights the humility of Israel's sins as he calls two neighboring nations, Ashdod and Egypt, to come and be witnesses, in a sense, as God holds Israel on trial. They are the witnesses that will see God testify to his sinful, the sinfulness of his people. And these are pagan nations. These were not people, God's, God's chosen people. These were ultimately nations who had previously, God had spoken judgment against them in chapter one for their sinfulness. And now they're the ones that get to come and look upon the sinfulness of Israel. He says, come and assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and look down and see the great tumults within Israel, within my people, and the oppressed people, the sinful, the, the way that they oppress people in their midst. Now, it was according to the Levitical law that when a trial was to take place and that their capital punishment, in a sense, was on, uh, on the docket, if the trial could lead to capital punishment, what was required by God's law was that there would be two witnesses, and so in a sense, God calls two witnesses to see, to be witnesses to the trial of Israel because they will be dealt with. They were ultimately on trial for their lives. And God calls these pagan nations as he issues the verdict of death for Israel. Death that they deserve because of their sins. Violence and oppression are condemned by God. They do not know how to do right, he says in verse 10, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Remember how in chapter 2, God said that there were people that who had, the people of God, they themselves had gotten away from following God and being obedient to God, and they were oppressing themselves within the nation, within his own people, robbing the poor, dealing with these people in a harmful and hurtful way. So God condemns that sin. See, Israel was so wrapped up in its affluence and power that they could not even see how to do right any longer. All they could see was how to maintain, how to keep pressing forward in protecting their affluence and power. I know when we look within our own nation, and sometimes we are obviously in the height of some of the most politicized uh, situation that we've ever experienced, perhaps. And often, we often lament, it seems like the powerful and the affluent, all they do is live to protect their affluence and power. And Israel as a nation was doing this. And we better look ourselves in the mirror Says, how often do the things that we do, the way we lead our lives, is it completely in service to protecting whatever affluence, whatever power we think we might have. Anything that we can do to protect ourselves, we will do. We are tempted to think that we can rest in that. 
You know, Israel lived in a fortress. And that's why in verse 11, God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Israel lived in this fortress. They had all of their strongholds. And God says there is nothing that's going to protect those things. You think that you can hold on to your affluence and to your power and you can continue to do evil in my sight and you can continue to oppress people and not live as I've called you to live. Do not think that any longer. There is nothing that can protect you because there is an adversary which shall surround the land and will take you down. So, God calls and reminds his people of Amos' calling and then puts his people on trial and declares that they are on trial for their lives and then ultimately God calls for judgment. Thus says the Lord in verse 12, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Now, I know we read that verse, and after hearing about this adversary, and we're thinking, what in the world does a piece of an ear, a leg, a couch, or a bed, I, what is going on here? We read that, it makes no sense to us because of the context. But as God has said in verse 11, Israel would be devoured, they would be surrounded. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded Israel and they plundered them. And they completely destroyed Israel. And what was left was this tiny little remnant. You see, Amos was a shepherd. He understood what life as a shepherd was like. And more than likely, as we've talked about, he was probably a wealthy shepherd, meaning that he owned herds and he sent herdsmen out to care for his flocks. Well, According to the rules of the day, if you were a herdsman and you were out responsible for caring for a sheep, that if you lost a sheep, you would ultimately have to pay the owner of the sheep whatever the cost of that sheep might be. So if you're out and you get a little bit distracted, you, you know, flip on a new YouTube channel and kind of lose sight of your bearings and a sheep wanders off, well, you're going to have to pay for that sheep if it wanders off. However, if you can prove to the owner that the sheep was devoured by a predator, a lion or something like that, then you would not have to pay. So... When a sheep got eaten, you were going to follow that lion until you found a piece of an ear or a leg or something that you could take back to the landowner and you could say, see, I wasn't lazy. I hadn't fallen down on the job. I don't owe you any money for this, but I have the peace. And God is saying to Israel, the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to plunder you. And the only thing that's going to be left is your little piece of a couch or a bed where you have lazily lounged around in all of your indulgence and abundance. And there's going to be nothing but a corner of it left. You sit around fat and happy thinking that you've got it all figured out. And God declares his judgment on Israel for their selfishness and their idolatry as they sit restfully on their couch, laying on their bed deep in their sin. And he says, there will be nothing left of it. I will not allow that to stand. All of Israel will be consumed. And that's why he says, here and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. 
I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. God condemns all of Israel, says that they will completely be consumed, and when he says that they will be consumed, notice again what he goes after. Their misuse, their misguided worship, the houses of worship, Bethel means house of God, and he goes to their summer homes, a picture of their wealth. Misguided worship, misuse of God's blessing and provision for your life. And God condemns those two things and he says, I will strike them at the very heart of the things that they care most about. How they have gone astray and worshiped other gods, their idolatry, their focus on anything but me. And I will strike them in their affluence and destroy their houses. I will condemn them for the misuse of their wealth. Friends, we should do well, we would do well to consider and hear this word from God just as Amos spoke to Israel. As we're going to get to in chapter five, God does not care anything about our misguided worship, worship of things other than him, worship of things that do not bring him glory. And the way that we gather around and we can sing all of the best songs, we can have the best environment, we can have all of the lights, we can have everything going right, but if our hearts are not fully devoted to him, he says, I don't want anything of it. And he says that your wealth, your, the, the, the affluence of your life is a blessing from me, and if you misuse that, you will not hold on to it. Now, I know we look out in the world and we see people of affluence doing evil things, but those are people who have not been set apart by God to be holy. The people of God have been given blessings, and if there is affluence in our lives, if there is wealth, which there is great wealth in all all of our lives, no matter what standard we might use for that, we are to use that wealth, we are to use all that God gives us for his glory. And we cannot allow ourselves to be tempted to worship ourselves, to self-idolatry. God will destroy those things. So God condemns Israel for the way that they had lost sight of true worship. And they had begun to worship so many other things, even within their houses of worship. And he condemns them for the misuse of their wealth. Pastor Kyle read for us Luke chapter 12. Again, two weeks in a row that we hear the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 12. And he says to the wealthy man after or uses this parable to describe how we are to handle our wealth and the things that God gives us and that we're not to look to them as some sign of being able to just rest and think of ourselves as great. Someone said in the crown, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he says, man, who made, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he uses this parable about the man who thought he had everything, and he had so much in his life that he had to build a new barn to hold all his crops. He had to go get a new banker who could handle the volume of wealth that he had that would make more money for him. He couldn't just leave it in the small bank. He had to find somebody that could take care of it and multiply it. And he had put his hope in his wealth. 
And he says that we should be on guard against covetousness and remember that our life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. Just like Israel, they had looked at all of God's favor in their life. And they had forgotten the source of that favor and the source of that blessing. And they began to think more highly of themselves than they should have. And they were resting in their wealth. And they were doing all that they could do to protect their own wealth and their own power. And they were worshiping something that would ultimately be turned to dust. And that is why he gave this parable. And as Jesus speaks these words after the man says that he's going to be great, the man says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 19. And then God says to him, fool. He calls him a fool and he says, this night your life will be required of you. You think you've got it all figured out. You've got abundance and power and everything is great. And Jesus says, you've put your hope in the wrong thing. God will strike us in the very heart of our sin, friends. And he wants nothing to do with our wealth that he has given us that is misused solely to feed our own egos, only to lead us to worship ourselves more. He wants our hearts. He wants our lives. And he will not allow those sins of idolatry, self-worship, power and oppression of the weak and those who we are called to serve and to bless, he will not allow those things to stand. So let us be faithful to remember that God, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need any of our money. He doesn't need any of our power. He owns it all. And if we recognize that, then we can use the affluence and the power and the blessings that he has given us for his kingdom, for his purposes, and to whom much has been given, much will be required, and to whom much has been entrusted, those that are faithful with that, more will be entrusted. And that's not a prosperity gospel. He is just saying there's a principle there that says that I will judge sinfulness and I will come against that. But those of us who are faithful and do our very best to honor the Lord with those things that he has given us and keep him first and to not fall on our knees worshiping ourselves or worshiping our power or wealth, but falling on our knees and worshiping Jesus alone and putting our lives completely in his hands, he will honor and he will bless that. So let us be that kind of people and let us repent when we are tempted to be swayed away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. We thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, but you call us out of it. In your kindness and your graciousness to us, you, you rebuke and you correct. And so I pray that the words that have been spoken, your word from your holy book, that those words would pierce the hearts pierce our souls. They would not be heard as a condemnation from a man. I am nothing. But they would be heard as a rebuke from Almighty God. That we cannot worship at the feet of wealth and power, fame. We cannot allow your blessings in our lives to 
cause us to just rest and think that we've got it all figured out. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep our lives and our attention on the things that you've called us to. We want to glorify you, Lord Jesus. We confess too often we do not. So would you help us? Would you just lead us even this morning into a time of confession and lament and acknowledging our sins before you? And as you always do, would you pick us up, remind us of how loved we are, set apart to glorify you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing of Jesus' faithfulness. In the midst of all of our sins, he is there with us. I've been held by the Savior. I fell far from above. And I've been down to that river. No, I ain't the same. I'm prodigal.
Thank you again for joining us, worshiping with us this morning. We're so thankful that you are um, able to be with us. Um, we're thankful. We want to give a special just appreciation to our tech team that makes all of this possible and uh, sacrifice so many hours, honestly, to just uh, allow us to be together in this way. And so we're super grateful uh, for all of them. And uh, as a reminder uh, to Pastor Kyle's welcome, if you are a guest with us, um, please be sure and let us know that you're here with us. You can either comment and we can try and reach you through social media uh, or even better than that, we would love to get your contact information just so we can reach out to you and stay connected. In this season of being distant from one another, we're doing all we can to create and allow for us to have some form of connection because uh, it's vital for God's people to have uh, one another. And so you can text visit CCM, V-I-S-I-T-C-C-M, to 97000 and um, that will allow us to give you a form through that you can fill out and just let us know that you're with us and uh, we look forward to again uh, hopefully soon um, please stay tuned as we look uh, week to week almost on kind of how we'll be gathering but uh, someday soon we hope to be able to be together uh, in this room all uh, once again so love you guys hope you have a great rest of your weekend and uh, we'll see you back next Sunday Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.